We have come to the end of our series in evangelism, and, and today I want to do three things. I want to do three things. I want to I review and give you brief summaries of each of the messages that I have given in this series, not only as a didactic reminder, but also for the sake of clarity. So that is the first thing that we will do. The second thing that we'll do is to cover the last installment on the message of the gospel that is found in Romans chapter 1, verse 6. And then towards the end, I'm going to open the forum for a Q&A. You guys can ask questions about what we have covered throughout the series, questions about evangelism, questions about the, the message of the gospel, any concerns, things that perhaps were not clear. You will have the opportunity to ask questions. You don't have to, but if you have any questions, I would love to answer those for you. My goal behind this series has been fidelity. I want you to understand what the Bible says about evangelism, about the gospel, and how to convey it. And the first three messages of this series were introductory in nature. These three messages built the foundation for our series. And the first three messages we looked at definitions and we looked at two important presuppositions that must be at the forefront of our evangelistic endeavor. So let me summarize what we discussed in those messages. During the first message, we looked at the definition of evangelism. We also looked at the role of the church in evangelism and the role of the believer in evangelism. What is evangelism? Evangelism in its broader definition is simply the proclamation of the Lordship of Christ and what God has done in Jesus, no matter the audience. So when we come together, when we come to this place and we proclaim the Lordship of Christ, we are evangelizing each other. That is why Paul says in Romans 1 that he was eager to evangelize believers in the church of Rome. Why? Because believers need to be evangelized. Right? We need to be reminded of what God has done through His Son on our behalf. Amen? So, so, so when we come together and we proclaim the Lordship of Christ, we are evangelizing. Now, evangelism in its limited definition, simply to call sinners to repentance and to faith. Amen? Broader definition, limited definition. Now, what is the role of the church in evangelism? This is very important. The role of the church in evangelism. We find that in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that the role of the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The role of the church is to build up the saints for the work of ministry. The role of the church is to teach doctrine to believers so that they may grow in the maturity of faith. The role of the church is to teach the truth to believers so that they may be able to speak the truth to unbelievers. Amen? Uh, you cannot speak the truth if you don't know what the truth is. The church is not an evangelistic hub. Uh, the, the church is not a place for, uh, where we attract sinners to come in. In fact, when sinners come to the church, when, when unbelievers come to the gathering, they should feel awkward. They should feel out of place. Why? Because the purpose of the gathering 
is to build up the saints. Amen. Of course we proclaim the gospel from the pulpit. Of course the gospel will be proclaimed when we are teaching the word of God. But we need to understand that the church, the gathering is here for the believer. Amen. And what is the role of the believer in evangelism? We find that in Matthew chapter 28 verse 16. The great commission. We are called to go. We are called to go. And to make disciples of all nations. Now, now. When Jesus told the apostles, I want you to go and make disciples. He is presupposing and he is implying that before you make disciples, they need to become Christians. Because you cannot disciple a goat. You disciple the sheep. Right? So you are to proclaim the gospel. They will become Christians. And then you are commanded to disciple them. Which implies that you need to spend time with them. You see, modern evangelistic endeavors focus on winning unbelievers. Winning people to Christ. And the discipleship aspect is completely forgotten. Jesus commanded us to make disciples. And then he says, of all nations. That Greek phrase is pantata ethne, which means every ethno-linguistic group. Now, now. Jesus is not saying, I want you to hop on a plane and go to Africa and convert people in Africa. What he is saying is that if the gospel is a global message and we have believers in every nation known to men, every believer is to make disciples in their own nations. So you are here in Oklahoma City, you are commanded to make disciples here in Oklahoma City. I'm not saying that going to another country is wrong. That is good. If you feel called to do that, amen, do it. But, but the focus on, uh, of making disciples of all nations, the meaning behind that is to make disciples in your own context. If believers around the world are doing the same thing, we will be able to fulfill that call. Amen? Now, is every believer called to the office of an evangelist? No. Is every believer called to evangelize? Yes. Why? Because every believer has received the ministry of reconciliation. You see, the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that He recreated us. God recreated us in Christ to good works. He recreated us in Christ for good works. You see, you were converted. You were adopted into the family of God for a mission. Each one of us have an apostolic mission. What is that apostolic mission? To go and preach the gospel. Amen? So even though not everyone was called to the office of an evangelist, every single person was called to evangelize. Amen? So that's what we looked at during the first message. During the second message, we looked at the certainty of salvation and unbelief in evangelism. If there is anything that you must, you and I must be certain of, is that God is not trying to save as many people as He can. Rather, He is saving the people. God is not trying to save. God is saving people. There are two different things. If you believe that God is trying to save, you will try to help Him. And He doesn't need your help. He needs your obedience. Because He is saving a people. At the same time, the Bible is very clear. 
that the very same words that God is using to bring his people to the flock are the same words that are hardening the hearts of the rest. Although we are commanded to preach the truth, the sovereign reality of evangelism is that the majority of the people that you come in contact with will not believe. And I'm not encouraging you to have a pessimistic approach to evangelism. I just want you to be biblical. And I want you to be realistic. You preach the gospel, the majority of people will not believe. Why? Because the same very words that God is using to convert people, He's using to harden the rest. If you do not understand this principle, if you don't have this principle as a presupposition, when you go to evangelize, you will tamper with the method and you will try to distort the message to make it more palatable to people. You preach the gospel, God will save, God will harden the hearts of the rest. During the third message, we looked at the importance of holiness in evangelism. Very important. Our lives will either attest, belittle, or discredit the effectiveness of the message that we proclaim. Our way of life is a message. I'm not saying that our way of life is the message, but our way of life is a message that validates the message. Our message loses validity if the people cannot see in us what we are telling them the message we proclaim can produce in them. If we are proclaiming that people must repent of their sins, if we are proclaiming that people must believe in Christ as their Savior and as their Lord, but we are living in a worldly manner, not only does our message lose credibility, but God is mocked. And God is blasphemed. And His holiness is belittled. That is why Paul says in Romans 2, he confronted the church in Rome because some of them, while preaching the gospel, were living like pagans. Brothers and sisters, there is a correlation between our words and our testimony. L listen to this. You cannot, biblically speaking, you cannot influence a culture that you are in love with. You see, when Paul went to Athens, he looked at the culture and he was appalled by the culture. He was not in love with the culture. He was appalled by what he saw. You cannot, you cannot reach people for Christ if you are in love with the same things that they are in love with. If you are as idolatrous as they are. I mean, if you think, act, talk, dress, and behave like a pagan while calling people to repent... You are jettisoning the gospel. Amen? So holiness is very important in evangelism. So those were the first three messages that we looked at and that we discussed. The definition of evangelism, the role of the church and the believer in evangelism, and two presuppositions. First presupposition, God will save, God will harden. Second presupposition, holiness is important in evangelism. Amen? 
Then we moved into the marrow of evangelism, which is the message. The message of evangelism. So for the last couple of weeks, we have been in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. And in this introduction of the book of Romans, Paul gives us four important elements of the message that we proclaim. He gives us the source of the gospel, which is God. He also gives us the content of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. He gives us the purpose of the gospel, which is to bring about obedience of faith or obedience to the faith. And he also gives us the objects of the gospel, which are the elect of God. God's elect. So what is Paul saying in this introduction about the gospel? He is saying that this is the gospel of God concerning his son to bring about obedience of faith in God's elect among all the nations. Why is this important? Because in gospel proclamation, we must begin with God. Because He is the source of the gospel. Once you start with God, then you can point people to Christ. Because He is the content of the gospel. And once you point people to Christ, then you command everyone to repent. Because that is the purpose of the gospel. And then you should expect believers to repent and believe. Because the elect are the objects of the gospel. Amen? So, during the fourth message, we looked at the source of the gospel. And we said that the source of the gospel is God. That God is the originator of this gospel. That God is the author of this gospel. That He is the architect of this gospel. Is he, if He is the author of this gospel, if He is the author of this good news, why do we need good news? Sometimes we give people good news without considering the why. Why do we need good news? Because the infinite, most holy and majestic, righteous God created us for His glory. And instead of us giving Him glory, we attempted to steal that glory. Therefore, we need to talk about the bad news. Amen? You see, when you start with God, you can actually take them to the bad news. And we discuss the bad news. You can listen to the message. I'm not going to get into that because it's a long list. But we must start with God. We must point them to the bad news, which will lead us to two important questions. How could a holy God be reconciled to sinful men? And how can God-haters, rebellious people escape the wrath and the judgment to come. See that? You start with God. You give them the reason why we need the good news. You give them the bad news. Then, then we answer those two questions. How could a holy God be reconciled to sinful people? How can sinful people escape the wrath to come? The gospel. So during the fifth message, we looked at the content of the gospel. And we said that the content of the gospel is the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. The eternal God, co-equal, co-existent with the Father, left His throne by taking the form of a servant. So in the incarnation, the Logos of God, Jesus Christ became the God-man. Not half God, 
not half men, but fully God and fully men. He needed to be fully God in order to represent God to us. And he needed to be fully man in order to represent man to God. And he needed to be the God-man in order to mediate impartially. So as the God-man, he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. Thus glorifying the Father, the very thing that we didn't do. And he died the death that we deserved, thus satisfying the wrath of God. So at the cross, like Martin Luther said, the greatest exchange took place. Our sins were imputed to him so that everyone who believes in Jesus and repents of his sins and, and surrender his life to him, his righteousness will be imputed to him. Our sins were imputed to Christ. His righteousness is imputed to those who believe in him. So that's the content of the gospel. Now the question is, how do we communicate this gospel? Do we whisper the gospel? Do we, do we share the gospel? Or do we proclaim the gospel? Which leads us to the sixth message that we covered last week. The purpose of the gospel. The gospel is not to be whispered. The gospel is not to be shared. The gospel is to be proclaimed. The gospel is to be proclaimed. The gospel is to be heralded. Amen? So the purpose of the gospel is obedience of faith. The purpose of the gospel proclamation is to bring about faith. You are commanding people to believe. You are commanding people to repent. Why are we commanding people to obey? Because that is the very thing they do not do. Amen? So gospel proclamation is a summoning. Gospel proclamation is a command. You are commanding them to do the very thing that they do not do. Therefore, you are not inviting people to place their faith in Jesus. You are commanding people to repent. You are commanding people to put their faith in Jesus' work. Gospel proclamation is not an invitation. Gospel proclamation is a command. And that is exactly what we see in the pages of scriptures. We saw last week the profiles of four evangelists. We looked at Jesus, we looked at Peter, we looked at Paul and John the Baptist. And all of them did the same thing. All of them did the same thing. They commanded people to repent. They commanded people to believe. They commanded people to consider the cost. They commanded people to surrender. Why? Because God will judge them. You see? It's a very different approach from the modern approach of evangelism, right? Where everybody is inviting people to accept Jesus. None of the evangelists that we find in scriptures did that. They commanded people to believe. They commanded people to repent. No mention of God's love. No mention of man's worth. No mention of man's value. You, com you are commanded to call them to repent and believe. Because that is the very thing that they do not do. Therefore. A profession of faith. Is not what we are looking for in evangelism. You are looking for an obedient response. You see, that we are not looking 
for a profession of faith, but we are looking for an obedient faith. A profession of faith is not the entry point into the kingdom of God. Rather, it is what flows out of an obedient faith. Obedient faith is what makes you a Christian. A profession of faith in the midst of persecution is what validates your conversion. Obeying the gospel means believing the gospel, accepting the gospel, submitting to the gospel. Let me remind you again, brothers and sisters, we are not called to invite people to accept Jesus, but we have an apostolic mission to call everyone everywhere to repent. That's what we are called to do. Now, this leads me to the last question. Who will believe this message? We start with God. We point people to Christ. We command everyone to repent. The question is, who will believe this message? Romans 1, verse 6. I'm going to start with verse 5 so we can understand the flow of thought. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, among all the nations, including you, who are what? Called to belong to Jesus Christ. Here Paul is giving us the objects of the gospel. Who will believe the message of the gospel? Who will believe the message that we proclaim the call? And who are the called? God's elect. The word called is, is, is used by Paul throughout his corpus of work to refer to the elect. That word called in the Greek is the word kletos, which means a request to which, listen, to which refusal is not an option. Paul is saying that this gospel will produce obedience of faith in those who are called by God. Now let me make a distinction because in the Bible, in the New Testament, we have two types of calls. We have the general call of the gospel and then we have the effectual call of God. Very important. Two types of calls. The general call of the gospel, the effectual call of God. What is the general call? The general call of the gospel is the commandment to believe and repent. What is the general call? Gospel proclamation. Right? When you are proclaiming the gospel, you're calling them to believe in Jesus Christ. You're calling them to put their faith in Jesus. So the general call goes forth to all people. We find a glimpse of this in Matthew 22, 14. Jesus said, many are called but few are chosen there's a hermeneutical principle that you need to understand meaning meaning is given to a word by its context okay we need to understand the authorial intent behind the usage of particular words so here in Matthew 22 Jesus is using the word called to refer to the general call. We are calling everyone to repent, but then he is saying that few are chosen. It is the call of the gospel. Repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What constitutes the general call. Now there is an effectual call. 
There's an effectual call, and this is the call that Paul is referring to in Romans 1. The effectual call is the divine call of God through the general call. What do I mean by that? When we are proclaiming the gospel, when we are calling people to believe and repent, God is using those words to effectually call his people to himself. Through our general call, God is effectually calling his people. So you have Martha and you have David. And you are calling both to repent and believe. Martha is completely apathetic to the message. Whereas the other one is convicted. What happened in there? The same general call went forth to both of them. But God effectually called the other one. You see the difference? We find that in Romans 8, 29 to 30. A very important passage. Let's read it. For those whom he foreknew. Now, now, Paul doesn't say foreknows. Paul is using the past tense. Foreknew. That word knew in the Greek is intimate knowledge. Prognosco. It means to Intimately knowing someone in eternity past. So Paul is saying that those whom he foreknew, those whom he knew intimately in eternity past, he predestined. Now, what does that mean? To predestine something is to predetermine something. So those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and then he continues in verse 30 and those whom he predestined he also what called those whom he foreknew he predestined those whom he predestined he effectually called and those whom he effectually called he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's what I want you to notice from the text. There are no conditional statements in it. Paul is not saying those whom he foreknew may be predestined. But he's saying that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He's using definite terms. And he is not saying those whom he predestined, he may call. But he's saying that those whom he predestined, he calls. Listen, he doesn't say that those whom he calls may be justified. He says that those whom he calls, what? Are justified. And those whom are justified, he doesn't say may be glorified. But it says that those whom he justified, he also glorified. Listen to a Puritan quote. All whom God foreloved, whom he loved before they were created. Isn't that amazing? That before, before God said, let there be light, he said, let you be mine. Those whom he foreloved, he predestined to be like Jesus. And all whom he predestined, he called. And all whom he called, he justified. And all whom he justified, he will certainly glorify. 
he actually uses the past tense for that which is future to emphasize how certain it is. The chain from electing love to heaven is unbreakable. You see, the, those whom God elects will be in heaven. They will be saved. All who are in the elect are called in this way and only them. Those whom God elects, he will effectually call. You know what? It's not there. I want you to go with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I, I want you to, to see his argument in Ephesians chapter 1. Consider. Consider what he has said in Romans 8. It's the same author. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we, that is a purpose clause, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ, according not to the whimsical will of men, but according to the purpose of His will. You see, let, let me clarify what it means to be elected by God. Because there is the proverbial um, cliche that says, well, those who are chosen are frozen. Right? So, so you're chosen, you can live however you want to, you will always be saved. Wrong. Because the purpose of election is holiness. And Paul is saying here that the reason why he chose us, the reason why he chose a people, is for that people to be conformed to the image of his son. Is for that people to grow in holiness. How do you know if someone has been elected by God? Look at their lives. Are they walking in holiness? Are they striving for holiness? Again, we're not looking for perfection. We're looking at a bunch of messed up people striving for holiness. But the striving needs to be there. You cannot say, I am elected, so I will always be saved. Therefore, I can live however I want to. No, 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 no. That is a sign of unbelief. How do you know if someone has been elected by God? Look at their lives. Are they striving for holiness? When they sin, do they repent? Right? Why? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Listen, listen. When God justifies you, he gives you his spirit. And it is his spirit what conforms you to him. How do you know if someone has been elected by God? The Spirit of God is in him. How do we know the Spirit of God is in a person? Fruits. You see, that is why a profession of faith doesn't save anyone because demons profess Jesus and they are still demons. Churchgoers profess Jesus 
And Jesus calls them workers of evil. They are prophets, teachers, pastors, Sunday school teachers. A lot of members in the church who are dead in their sins. Who are professing Christ. How do we know if someone possesses the spirit? They will produce fruits. 1 Peter 2.9 is in the screen. But you. Now let me give you a little bit of the context. Peter is communicating. Peter is writing to a lot of Gentiles. Believers who are Gentiles. Who are scattered throughout Cappadocia and Asia Minor. As a result of Nero's persecution. Listen to what he is telling them. You believers are a chosen race. Race. There's only one race. Why is he calling them a chosen race? There are actually two races. Those in Adam and those in Christ. And those in Christ, Paul calls them kinosanthropos, new humanity. So, so, so what is Peter saying here? You are a chosen new humanity created in Christ. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim. You see that? What I told you earlier, you are converted in order to what? To proclaim. And he's saying you are chosen, his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who what? Who effectually called you out of darkness. You see that calling, that calling has a movement in it. That calling is a force. That calling brings you out of darkness and takes you to his light. Amen? That's what effectual call is. So brothers and sisters, who will believe this message? Who will believe this message? Let, 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 me, let me have Luke, the physician Luke, answer that question for us to confirm what we are saying. Acts chapter 13, 48. Paul is proclaiming the gospel. He's been persecuted. Listen to what verse 48 says. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life. Believe. Who will believe this message? Those who were appointed to eternal life. I mean, it cannot be clearer than this. Some people will say, no, 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 no. Those who believe are appointed to eternal life. In order for you to get to that conclusion, you need to eisegete this text. Which means you need to bring your own meaning to the text. You need to restructure the grammar of the text. The text says, those who were appointed. You see that word, were appointed, is in the passive tense. What does that mean? The appointing was acted upon the person. The subjects were the recipients of an action. They were appointed to eternal life. So Paul was proclaiming the gospel and those who were appointed to eternal life believed the message. Who will believe our message? Who will believe the message that we are proclaiming? Those who were appointed to eternal life. Who are those who were appointed to eternal life? Those whom he foreknew. 
those whom he predestined. So who are the called? The called are those who were appointed to eternal life. If Paul said that those who those whom God foreknew he predestined and those whom he predestined he called and those whom he called he justified and those whom he justified he also glorified what could possibly make anyone think that those who will believe the message are other than the elect I get it I know that this is difficult to not only receive but to process and and fully embraced. But you need to understand this. There is no more offensive doctrine in the Bible than the doctrine of the sovereignty of God in salvation. For it removes any room for human boasting. Let me let me read what Charles Spurgeon succinctly said. He said, men will allow God to be everywhere but on his throne. I'm going to repeat that quote again. Men everywhere will allow God to be everywhere. What does that mean? They allow God to be the creator of the world. They allow God to be the creator of the stars and the universe. They allow God to be the one who created all things. But they will not allow him to be on his throne. And God cannot be God unless he is on his throne. Which means that he can do whatever he pleases with whom, whomever he pleases. Make sense? It is his will against the human will. And he does as he pleases. Let me bring a word of clarification. Because I believe that one of our Achilles heel in modern Christianity is the lack of thinking. We don't like to think. We like to receive things, put in a box, this is, this is how things are, don't make me think. But I want you to think. Let's push, let's push the logic to its conclusion. Many believe that once you are saved, you will never lose your salvation. To which I'll say, praise God, amen, that is true. But these people who hold to that position also believe that it was your free will who brought about your salvation. On what grounds are free creatures exempt from losing their salvation? If free will is what brought about your salvation, did God take away that free will when you were saved? Once you are saved, you will never lose your salvation. But it was your free will who brought about that salvation. The question is, what makes you think that your free will will not make you lose your salvation? Did God take it away? Are you now not free to do whatever you want? You see, the reason why I am secured in my salvation, the reason why I believe that once I am saved, I will never lose it is because it was God who brought me to himself. 
Not my will. It was God who brought me to himself. The Bible says in James 1 that out of his own will, out of his own will, not yours, he brought us forth. Charles Spurgeon once said, I do not come into this pulpit hoping that perhaps somebody's will, out of his own free will, will return to Christ. My hope lies in another quarter. I hope that my master will lay hold of some of them and say, You are mine and you shall be mine. I claim you for myself. My hope arises from the freeness of grace and not from the freedom of the will. Listen, the belief on election, the belief that God has predestined a people into salvation is one of the most encouraging things that we can believe in. Because it gives us assurance. In evangelism, it gives us assurance. Because I know that, that God will save a people. That it does not depend on your will, but it depends on God. So when God calls you, you will not be able to resist that. Because if you can resist his call, he ceases to be God. We don't think through that. You're telling me that the creator of the world is limited by the will of creatures. Brothers and sisters, that is blasphemy. Spurgeon continues. Some of you have never preached on election since you were ordained. These things you say are offensive. And so you would rather offend God than offend men. But you reply, these things would not be practical. I do think that the climax of all men's blasphemy is centered in that utterance. Tell me that God put a thing in the Bible that I'm not to preach. You are finding fault with my God, but you say it would be dangerous. What? God's truth dangerous? I should not like to stand in your shoes when you have to face your maker on the day of judgment after such an utterance as that. Brothers and sisters, the objects of the gospel are the elect of God. God is sovereign. God will save a people through the gospel. When you are evangelizing, you must, you must believe that God will save a people. I want to close this with the reading of a passage. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. I want you to go there with me. Because I want you to underline and circle things. And in this passage, Paul brings to summation everything that he taught us in Romans 1, 1 to 6. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31, we'll see... We'll see all of these things coming together. It's a beautiful passage. 1 Corinthians 1. Starting in verse 18. You there? Okay. For the word of the cross. Let me ask you a question. What is the word of the cross? The gospel. That's how he starts. For the gospel. And then he gives us. 
two types of people and two types of responses. He says, the gospel, the word of the cross, is folly. That word in the Greek is moriah, which means moronic. The gospel is moronic to those who are perishing. Now, this is in the present active tense. It is happening, right? The word of the cross, the gospel, when you are preaching, is moronic to those who are in a state of perdition. But, to us, those who are being saved, again, in the present active tense, because God not only saves you in the past tense, He also saves you in the perfect tense, and He saves you in the future tense, right? He will save us. He is saving us. He has saved us. So Paul is saying that those who are being saved, the same message is the dunamis of God, is the power of God. See that? We proclaim the word of the cross to those who are in a state of perdition, those who are perishing, this message will be moronic. But to those who are being saved, this message will be the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise and where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, in the plan of God, in the Sophia of God, in the sovereignty of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. What is, what is Paul saying here? You see, no one can know God through philosophy. No one can know God through arguments that are philosophical in nature. We can have an apologetic debate. If I am giving you the ontological argument, you won't believe. If I give you the teleological argument, you won't believe. If I give you the argument from design, you won't believe. Why? That is philosophy. And Paul is saying that no one can get to God through that. It pleased God through the folly, through the moria, through the moronic message that we preach. Christ crucified to save those who believe. This is in the active tense. So it should be read to save those who are believing. To the ones believing. Now listen, listen. Verse 22 and verse 23. Verse 22, Paul gives us what the world wants to hear. He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Oh my goodness, listen, listen to me. How many people are saying that we must give unbelievers what they want to hear. I mean, we must approach them with what they are seeking. Paul is saying that Jews demanded signs and, and Greeks were seeking wisdom. That's what the world wants. Is that what Paul gave them? Right? So he said, Jews demand signs, Gentiles seek wisdom, but I preach Christ crucified. <laughs> I mean, I know what they want to hear. I know what will tickle their ears. I'm not going to give them that. I'm going to give them Christ and Him crucified. Now, when I give them Christ, listen to their response. 
a stumbling block to the Jews. A scandal to the Jews. It's a scandalous to the Jews. This message of Christ crucified is a scandal to the Jews. They could not conceive a Messiah being crucified. And it was moronic to the Gentiles. But to those who are called. Both Jews and Greeks. Christ. The power of God. And the wisdom of God. Let, let, me, let, me, let me explain what Paul is doing here. He said we preach the gospel. To Jews and Gentiles. We preach the gospel to the world. Now I know that the world is demanding signs and and the world is demanding philosophy and wisdom. But instead of giving them what they want to hear. I'm going to give them Christ and him crucified. When I give Christ and him crucified to the world. This will be a scandal to some people. And it will be moronic to others. But God through the same message. Out of the Jews and out of the Gentiles. He is bringing to himself the cold ones. You see it? For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now watch what happens. Verse 26. For consider your calling. Brothers. Consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of noble birth. But God chose. What is foolish. Uh, God chose. Those who are considered moronic by the world. To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that what? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If you can say that you chose Christ, you can boast. If you say that it was out of your own will, out of your own determination to come to Christ, you can boast. And Paul is saying that God will not share his glory with no one. The reason why he chose you is so that you may not boast. And because of, brothers and sisters, underline this. Because of him. Because of him. You are in Christ. See that? Because of him, you are in Christ. Not because of you. Do you see it? It is because of him that you are in Christ. So that. Verse 31. As it is written. Let the one who boasts. Boast in the Lord. After he explained how the gospel works. He's saying I want you to consider your calling my brothers. You were not wise. God chose you. You were not strong. God chose you. And it is because of him that you are a Christian. That word in Christ. That was the designation for believers in that first century. So Paul is saying that because of God you are the Christian. So that as it is written. Let the one who boasts. Boast in the Lord. What's the importance of this passage? Particularly as it pertains to evangelism. 
you preach the cross, God will save. Amen.